So, I hope you've all had a useful week. Uh, tomorrow, people will be uh, starting to go home. Uh, that is the uh, conventional home. Um, my, my hope is that the, uh, the week here has given you uh, some increased sense of what Ajahn Chah used to refer to as our real home. And probably many of you probably come across that little booklet or transcription of a talk of his, Our Real Home, and uh, where he encourages, this is a, somebody who's dying actually, encouraging them to let go of everything that is not real and and find an abiding uh, like as Ajahn Abhinando a couple of nights ago talking about the abiding in awareness itself, that uh, maybe some of us uh, touch into this or have some sense of what this means, but the invitation, the uh, encouragement is to train in a way whereby we're moving towards that as a, as a permanent abiding. That's our real home. So... What we can do is we, on a retreat situation like this, we have a chance to take a close look at the false abidings, the things that we think are secure, but then they let us down. And because the conditions are so uh, ideal, then we can look very closely, uh, more focused, more consistent than perhaps we can normally because of the distractions of everyday life. So it's my hope that when you leave here, you take away with you uh, a stronger sense, a clearer sense of what is a real home, what is a real abiding, what is safe, what is secure, what is really useful. So that when the world throws up the, the false abidings, they we're not so fooled. Because you know? uh, that's what ignorance does. You know, we we get fooled to think that something is going to lead to well-being when it doesn't. And over and over again, uh, day in, day out, year in, year out, life in, lifetime in, lifetime out. But uh, with this opportunity, hopefully we, well, I'm sure we have all uh, gathered some increased confidence and ability in recognizing, as the Buddha said, seeing the false as the false. We're not pretending that we're never going to uh, get lost again or mistake the false for the real. You know, in that Dhammapada verse, mistaking the false for the real and the real for the false, we stay stuck in falsehood. Seeing the real as the real and the false as the false, we attain to that which is perfectly real. So we are going to mistake uh, that which is real for that which is false, but we can wake up. At that, yeah, with our with our momentum in in turning to the refuge of awareness, yeah, we remember sooner. And 
And then everyday practice becomes an opportunity for, for, uh, for strengthening this. Please don't go away with the idea that you're just going to have to fill in time until you go on your next retreat. That's a really unfortunate view. Everything's a teaching to see what we will do, mistaking what's before our face, we have to start anew. And we do that moment by moment by moment, everything. There is nothing that is not practice. There is nothing that is not an opportunity to see where we are mistaking the false for the real and the real for the false. It's constant. Uh, the first day of retreat here, somebody very kindly offered us the latest catalogue for IKEA. Uh, thank you very much, whoever it was. I think it might have been Marion. It was Marion. And on the front there, the front cover, it says, Home is the most important place in the world. And I read that and I thought, mm hmm. <laughs> do they mean duvets and sofas? <laughs> I suspect so. And of course, you know, as tempting as that home is, nice towels, nice sofa, comfortable things, that it's not that long before all of us, you know, all of us here actually, a few young whippersnappers around here, but for the rest of us, it's not long before we'll be in our hospital beds. <laughs> Staving off bed sores. And bed sores are not funny. They're not funny at all. If you've seen them, they're very difficult to deal with. And it's not that long before this is what we've got ahead of us. And, and so where will our... Ikea sofas and, and duvets and nice... They do really good shower curtains. <laughs> I, what I like about Ikea shower curtains is they're so cheap that you can throw them away very soon. Every time they start going mouldy, you don't have to put up with those stinky shower curtains anymore. <laughs> I like Ikea for that. But even our nice new shower curtains or sofas or whatever else, but you know, when we've got bed sores, they're not going to really do it for us, are they? So they're not a real, it's not a real home. Sorry, Mr. Ikea, we don't believe you. Um, that's not the real home. But what we can do is that uh, when we start thinking it is, you say, oh, right, this is an opportunity for practice. This is where we learn. Just, you know, not to pretend that we're not fooled. I mean, you know, we all like new shower curtains and sofas and, you know, whatever. But just to see where we're investing too much in those things. Where we're, trying, where we're finding a false source of security that's our practice, not just rushing off somewhere and developing our samadhi. Yeah, if there's a chance to do that and it really works for us, well then fine, but not to miss the moment-by-moment, day-by-day situation. Every time we get fooled, that's it. That's a chance to wake up. And in the moment of waking up, the last thing we need to do is to give ourselves a bad time and to say, oh, I shouldn't have gotten lost or... I shouldn't have taken so long before I woke up. I mean, that's a real sad sack kind of attitude. We don't, you know, it's not an obligation. What we can do is as soon as we have a moment of waking up, we can feel good. We will feel good. It's just that we want to pay attention to that good feeling. Really pay attention to it. Just really enjoy and feel glad. Really feel glad. Because awareness is nourished by these things. You know, when we really appreciate how good awareness feels, awareness grows. If as soon as we have a moment of awareness, then we go into kind of giving ourselves a hard time and, and so on, well then, awareness is you know, perhaps not going to go so well. So whatever's going on in situations where we find ourselves 
make a mistake, and they say, good. I saw it as a mistake. Not, oh, that's terrible, I made a mistake because I really should be perfect. No way. Say, no, good, I saw, I recognize the false as the false. I can see a mistake as a mistake. You know, it takes a lot of awareness to see the false as the false. This is uh, something that comes up regularly when uh, years of, over years of practice, I, I see people doing what they need to be doing and getting on with their practice, and then they reach a point where they come across something that they haven't seen before about themselves. Maybe you know, maybe come across some sense of conceit, attachment to self-view. And then what can happen is they jump to the conclusion and say, oh, all my practice up until now has just been an expression of conceit. I've been kidding myself. All these years, all this practice has been false. What a waste of time. Well, I say, no, that's, uh, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to view it like that. You want to say, well, how wonderful that practice has cultivated awareness to such a degree where we're able to reflect now on our conceit. Because conceit is really difficult to see. It's really devious, really subtle. So if our awareness is mature enough to see the false as the false, that's great. That's where we can let go. That's where we grow. So the various ways that we we uh, attach to things, you know, the, like possessions, you know, Mr. Ikea or whatever else it is that we we think the more the better. You know, we can be easily caught up in that, you know, even with our nice little monastery here. You know, although I'm better these days, I, I, for quite a few years there, I used to really, really wish that we had more land. And even now I can still kind of get interested in the possibility, but I don't get terribly excited about it because I realize that getting lost in wanting something we don't have doesn't really help. Yes, if it comes available, then of course we're interested in it. But I've been to lots of monasteries where they've got a lot more land than we do and the abbots are wrecked. Yeah. I mean, they've got insurance policies they've got to worry about, rabbits they've got to worry about, bushfires they've got to worry about. I mean, paying people to come and run the place they've got to worry about. And we don't have a lot of these problems. The idea that the more we've got, the better is to be looked at. Remember Ajahn Chah telling a, a good teaching story about this and at the time he told it, he, he acknowledged that he wasn't sure if it was true or not, but basically it was still a good story and uh, it had a good principle encoded in it and it was regarding a big, uh, important uh, monk from Bangkok, uh, ecclesiastical elder who had been invited to go to China on a uh, important delegation. You know, this was when China was first opening up back in the... Uh, uh, probably the early 80s, or no, it was probably more like the 70s. And so this delegation of, of high-ranking monks went to, Bang, went to uh, Beijing and, and did whatever they did there. And, and then as they were leaving, they were given uh, some nice gifts. And the gift was a, a really, really exquisitely beautiful porcelain teacup. You know, those nice teacups with a nice little lid on and everything. And... And this was really, really expensive. I mean, really valuable. I don't know whether it's an antique Ming or, or whether it was just something really posh, but it was really valuable. And, 
And so when he was given it, he, he gave it to his, his young attendant monk and said, you know, look after this. This is, you know, this is really, really. And so then they carried it very carefully, didn't put it in the hold, of course, took it on the carry-on luggage, took it back to Bangkok and, and got back to the monastery. You put it in a, you know, put it in a proper place and, you know, look after, be careful. This is really valuable. And, and so he, he did that. His attendant monk put it in a, in a proper place. And, and uh, I don't know how long it was, maybe a year or so after that, um, his attendant monk came to see him and said, "Oh, oh, Tan Chakun, I'm, I'm really sorry. I just, I have to confess, I'm afraid that special teacup of yours today, when I was dusting, fell over and smashed." And the the monk says, "Oh, he says, thank goodness. He says, ever since the day I got it, I've been worried. <laughs> it's, it's been a total pain in the neck. Since <laughs> from the day I got it, it's been nothing but trouble. <laughs> thank goodness, it's all over." <laughs> But we don't see that, do we? You say, oh, precious Ming. Oh, yeah. Got to have this precious Ming. <laughs> well, he was smart enough to actually get the message. He realized, you know, that, well, often that's not, you know, often people don't realize that. And uh, so they just go out and, you know, get angry at somebody. You know, you've ruined my precious Ming. And I go, go out and get another one or whatever. So the possessions that we have, trying to find an identity in what's me and mine. You know, this is, yeah. But we're offered in the teaching about the, uh, the refugees is to find a true reliable identity. Yeah. The identity in awareness itself, the identity in the truth, in reality, in what is, in actuality, instead of in what is fleeting, what is insecure. No matter, you know, these things purport to be reliable. I referred a few nights ago to you know, feeling really healthy and how good it felt, and and I, I know I get fooled by this one. I just you know, get a get a few days alone and quiet, and the weather's nice, and you do some exercise, and your meditation goes well, and you're feeling really good, and just oh yeah, this is this is how it should be. This is a, and I can get really lost in that. I just where the energy's flowing, you know, you just, there can be clinging, grasping, uh, me and mine, like you know, one of the things that we one of the biggest cons, we find a, a false sense of identity and security, is my life. And if you ever yeah, have the opportunity to be with somebody who's dying, you know, again, somebody asked Ajahn Chah, you know, how do you how do you behave when you're with somebody who's dying? Somebody's in the very last stages of dying. This was. This was back in the uh, late 70s when uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and the death and dying movement was, was coming around. There was a lot of interest in this. And, uh, and his reply was, he said, well, when somebody's really dying, he says, they're an automatic pilot. There's not much you can do. He said, what you can do, though, is watch how it affects you. Yeah. Pay attention here because it's going to be affecting you big time. And we can be busy trying to help them. But by the time somebody's really on the way out, there's not much you can do. You know, okay, there's the conventional things of you know trying to be decent and supportive and so on, but there's not that much you can really do. They're, they're on automatic by that stage. But what we can do is see how does it affect me when I see somebody losing their life. You know, that's a really good opportunity for practice. You see, where, where I uh, hang on, where I find 
sense of me-ness. Me and mine, not just porcelain teacups because they get broken, as we all know, but also my life. Uh, and another teaching story which I like very much about this, which uh, you may well have heard before, but it's always worth telling again. I don't know if it comes out of uh, India or China, but it's about this uh, marauding, uh, psychopathic warrior who's uh, wreaking havoc all over the countryside with his, with his troops just going from village to village and just wiping out people. And he's, he's, he's well-known for what a terrible tyrant he is. And so it happens that he's approaching this one, one village where there's a monastery. And the people come running to the monastery and tell the monks and say, oh, this, this terrible warrior is coming and he's going to kill everybody and, and everybody's leaving and you must leave too. And so all the monks quickly get their things together and, and they're just to leave the monastery and their meditation master is still sitting there in his kuti, in his hut. And I say, why? What are you doing? Come on, we've got to get out of here because this, uh, you know, this guy's going to kill everybody. And uh, he just sits there and doesn't pay any attention to them. And so they all go. So the village is empty and the monks have all gone. And sure enough, and not be all long, this terrible tyrant turns up with his army and running around, and nobody to kill. And he comes to the monastery and at last he finds somebody and there's this meditating monk sitting there. And he can't believe his eyes. This monk is sitting there sees him and doesn't pay any attention. You know, he's used to people cowering and terror in front of him. And he's furious and he pulls his sword out and he, he says to him, don't you know who I am? I'm the most terrifying master in the country and I, I can cut your head off without blinking an eyelid. And he says, oh, is that so? He says, don't you know who I am? I'm that meditating monk who can have his head cut off without blinking an eyelid. At which point we're told that this, uh, this terrifying uh, warrior was, uh, had a change of mind. And, uh, the point being that uh, what really did turn this guy around, what, the, the, what really, uh, the, the point of this is that this guy knew that even his life was not a source of security. Yeah. And so in situations where we find our, you know, like everyday situations where where we feel threatened physically. Yeah, you get a, I can get a cold and feel it's terminal. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you can't coughing and saying, oh, this has got to be it. And, yeah. Well, these situations, whatever they are, whether it's our health or our possessions or our reputation, where we've mistaken something for being something that it's not. Instead of Judging ourselves, saying, oh, I should know better. Saying, no, this is good. This is good to really train ourselves. Say, good. I'm pleased. I've seen it. Mistaking something that's false for something that's real. And every time we do this, well, then, yes, it's cultivating the true refuge, our true abiding, our true home, somewhere where we can be really safe. So, as we uh, the retreat will be coming to a close tomorrow. And, uh, and you start thinking about home, 
like to encourage us all to bear that in mind. You know, what is our true home? Yeah. And I noticed that there are some more questions here this evening which I should pay attention to. Can intimate relationship with my partner be an obstacle on the way to liberation? Thank you. Uh, intimate relationships with committed partners are just a normal part of human behavior. Um, what is uh, what is unhelpful and an obstruction to liberation, of course, is where our behavior is tainted with any uh, consequences of the actions that lead to harm, as we were saying last night, that if our... If our um, you know, in this case, if it's a contractual relationship, there's a mutual understanding, and the relationship has an intimate activity, well, that's just normal. Um, within that, if there's if somebody has a, a spiritual commitment or a, a commitment to a spiritual life, well, then there is uh, a deepening of awareness or an increase of sensitivity that will mean that when that even if it is a, a contractual relationship and an and, and agreement, that there still can be greed operating. And as with, you know, it's like with food. I think food and sex, basically, uh, are a good metaphor for each other. If we don't discipline our um, appetite for food and just stuff whatever we want in our mouth whenever we want it, you know, just because it tastes good or feels good or whatever, and what's the result going to be? I mean, we all know that there's certain food and certain ways of eating that, even though they might feel good, are not really good for us. And so likewise, with sexual relationships, there can be you know, things that are, you know, might appear good or, or okay on one level, but if we really bring awareness to it and sensitivity to it, well, then we can recognize it as being unskillful. And if it is, well, then it can become an obstruction to practice. So I think the main point there with that is, uh, again, like with anything, to, to bring awareness to it. Um, and then we'll be able to decide for ourselves. The feeling of obstructedness, you know, I think it's something we can learn to read within ourselves. You know, like, for instance, you're on a retreat, conditions are ideal, and in this situation, we'll put all issues of sexuality aside for this period of time because we know that it can be an intense distraction and, and, uh, and can uh, make our lives unnecessarily complicated. And so for the sake of taking our spiritual life deeper, uh, you know, we put that aside and not as any judgment of being wrong or whatever. That, you know, for householders, it's perfectly normal. Yeah, but we focus more on... Uh, cultivating awareness and the inner, inner uh, spiritual faculties. And then we can get to a, a clearer sense of, of feeling of confidence about what, what, what the path of practice involves. Yeah. What does it mean when I'm according with the way and when I'm not? And, and so we have that feeling. We can be mindful of that and say, oh, this is what it feels like when, you know, this is this confidence, this clarity, not necessarily, okay, I've got all the answers up in my head you know, because they don't do any good, not really. But where the heart, where the whole being, where we're feeling this confidence, this clarity, this openness, this aliveness, we're able to read the condition, where we make mistakes, we recognize mistakes as mistakes and 
take responsibility for them and, and make appropriate adjustments. And say, say, okay, well, this is where it feels unobstructed. And so we learn to read that. So then in our daily life, whether it's an intimate relationship or whether it's you going shopping or, or watching the internet or reading novels or watching movies or whatever, we can read. Is this accord with that with which I'm most deeply committed or is this creating a sense of obstructedness? So we can read for ourselves. We can tell for ourselves. So that's what I would encourage. Yeah. During this retreat, I've come up against and then in contact with my capacity for being destructive. It's not surprising to me as I realize this is is fundamental to human nature. Uh, however, it would be helpful to hear your reflections on this. Uh, destructiveness being fundamental to human nature, well, um, depends how we define human nature. I think this is an important question. Uh, part of this humanity is, uh, is like any other animal. We have the animal instincts, just like the wild animals in the jungle that don't have a reflective awareness. Uh, just pure instinct. Uh, something enters my territory, I just attack him, bite him, scratch him, kill him, eat him, whatever. Yeah, that's the no reflection on you know whether we could sit down and share our feelings on the subject or not. <laughs> you know, I don't know whether apes have those kind of you know, meetings. They get together in a circle and say how they feel about. You know, somebody invading their territory. <laughs> this is a human thing. I think this is, and this is what makes humans humans, is we do have this reflective awareness. And I think it does d matter a lot how we define human nature. Uh, there's probably a very good, you know, philosophical debate that could be had on the subject. But uh, just to say that my own feeling about this is that I define human nature as, as uh, the Buddha was a perfected human being. That's my kind of, that's my guideline. The Buddha, he wasn't a god. He said it himself. No, he's not a god. He was a flesh and blood human being, but he perfected his humanity. He perfected his humanity. He did what human beings can do, which is exercise the faculties we have to free the heart and mind from greed, aversion, and delusion. And so that's how I define human nature. Uh, but that doesn't mean to say that uh, we don't have the physical instincts. You know, the, the Buddha as well had the physical, in physical instincts. Um, um, what the Buddha's nature was like after his complete enlightenment, I, I don't know. I wouldn't hazard to guess. So the inclination to be destructive, uh, we could say that it's part of our human nature. But I think it's very important how we how we uh, vision what being a human being is really about. You know, I, I, often I, people will make a mistake, they'll say something, you know, or they'll lie or, or, or steal or do something and say, oh, well, it's only human. I, I hear this all the time and, and I, I don't know when, at what point, point in my own practice, I basically I just I, can, I don't believe that, I don't accept that. And I think it's really unfortunate to define human beings as inherently um, stupid. Uh, which is basically what th th is going on there. You know, you say human beings are inherently flawed. 
Well, the whole thing of going for refuge to the Buddha, as far as I'm concerned, is that so human beings are not inherently flawed. The flaws that we have, the tendencies toward greed, aversion, and delusion, selfishness, conceit, all these things, these are something extra that we add to what is inherently beautiful and already here. Again, to quote our teacher, Ajahn Chah, he said, it's like water. The nature, the pure, essential nature of the water is always pure. The fact that you've added all sorts of stuff to it doesn't change the essential nature. Personally, that's the model that I use. And so that, for me, is, is human nature. That's, the, uh, that's the, the, what human nature can be like. The fact that we fall short of that uh, just shows us where our work is. If we have destructive tendencies, we say, oh, right, well, that's where I'm identified with my animal nature. Destructiveness, if it's talking about based on, on hurtfulness, aggression, untamed passion, and so on, well, hey, well, that's, that's not truly human. That's kind of subhuman, really. Yeah. It, it, not to demonize and say, well, I, you know, there's a mistake we could make there and say, well, you know, I must never get angry and, and I'm not allowed to feel anger. I'm not allowed to feel lust. I'm not allowed to feel these wild passions. Uh, that's uh, certainly not what I'm suggesting. These things do need to be received and recognized and owned and say, yes, this is, this is part of me too. But to have the vision, to have the aspiration, to have the view that we're not obliged to be limited at this point, I think this is terribly important. And if if we consider ourselves Buddhists, I think we, we need to take this on board, really, that we don't excuse ourselves when we get caught up in our greed, aversion and delusion and say, well, it's only human. You say, well, this is my limited stage of humanity, but I'm aspiring to do more. And I have confidence. I want to do more. Again, in the spirit of what I was saying last night, you know, the, the power of prayer. You know, say, I really want to be able to do more. To generate conscious wish is a way of orienting our lives. That's, that's how I understand prayer. It's really a way of orienting our hearts to the deepest possible place we can get to we orient our lives towards that which we truly and most profoundly respect and love. That which we love more than anything else. Whatever word we put on it, truth, reality, whatever word we put on it, that which we love most deeply and want to be one with when we die, in accord with when we die. Yeah. Well, how do we align ourselves with that now? Well, I think this is what prayer can do. And so even if we do get caught up in tendencies of destructiveness or deceit or unkindness or heedlessness to not let ourselves be defined by that. Just say, oh yeah, that's that's happened. As soon as we remember it, it's already gone. As soon as we're in a place of reflection, reflective awareness, it's already passed. As soon as we remember, we have the opportunity to begin again. And then we remember our refuge and say, oh right, yeah, I aspire to that which is free. Completely free from greed, aversion, and delusion. This is this slightly new age question that Ajahnabhinanda refused to deal with. Are we spiritual beings travelling to humanness or human beings travelling to spiritualness? I think we're both. And you can make of that what you like. <laughs> now, is that a new age answer or what? 
So the question about shame. What I would like to add to what I said last night about it is uh, is the meditation on forgiveness that I think is is really uh, very can be a really powerful tool for dealing very directly with this um, mental disfigurement yeah. that's sometimes called toxic shame. Yeah. In my talk last night, I, 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 the way I use these words, actually I didn't refer to wholesome guilt. I always tend to see guilt as always neurotic and, and I, 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 was, I did refer to wholesome sense of shame. And, and, and retranslated it as a commitment to integrity. However we use these words, we know what we're referring to. That sense of, I'm unworthy, I'm no good, I'm bad, you know, because I've done something bad. And, and, and the conditioning, as I spoke about last night, that, that, that people can be subjected to, and um, that brings this about. How do we address it? And, and I would like to just uh, refer this evening just very briefly to the meditation that one can do on forgiveness to quite consciously set this up as a, as a, as a uh, kind of little project for ourselves to become skilled in cultivating forgiveness. Uh, and I, 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 I refer to it this evening and, and I say making it a project because there's a lot in our world that runs counter to this. It's increasing the, the whole movement towards litigation and, and blame. And it seems to be something to do with the increased uh, idolization of individuality. We've lost community. People don't have the same sense of community. The, the sense of identity from being the community now is actually contracted right down to the one lonely, isolated, painful ego, me. And this is a very new development for human beings. And I think part of the, uh, one of the uh, symptoms of this, this uh, regrettable condition is the tendency to uh, um, blame others. Uh, it's a kind of like it's a reaction uh, out of anger. You know, this lonely, isolated, contracted ego just doesn't have enough, there's just not enough possibility to deal with the pain of life. And so we end up just spewing it out, spitting it out onto the world, onto others. And we get a relief at the moment that we do it. Um, but it's a, it's a very dangerous thing to be caught up in because if we're blaming and criticizing and condemning others, we're also to some degree blaming, criticizing, condemning ourselves. And uh, so anyway, shame is tied up in all of this. And what I found and what I do encourage is making a project out of contemplating forgiveness. You really... Contemplating what is it? Do we believe it's possible? Sometimes people will just say, I could never ever forgive this person for what they've done. And sometimes you hear it in such a venomous way with such conviction, there's basically nothing you can say about it. But I always find it terribly sad when I hear that. because It's like somebody has picked up a burden, a massive burden, and said, I'm going to carry this around for the rest of my life. And it just is not necessary. If we contemplate forgiveness, what we can start to see is, well, what resentment is. What is the opposite of forgiveness? Whatever word we put on it, I would, I would probably put on the word resentment. Oh, 
non-forgiveness. What it is, is forgiveness is not necessarily forgetting what happened. Probably there's some things that happened to us that we will never forget. But what it is doing is making the choice to not invest ill will in that memory. The memory itself is one thing. The investment of ill will is something else. Did I talk a few days ago about that situation where somebody on retreat here was was banging the floor with their meditation stool? Um, and, and I really regretted having them on the retreat. I, it was a meditation, a monastic retreat and situation that conspired whereby this person's flight was delayed and they arrived late and it coincided with our having our own retreat. And so I agreed to letting them be here on retreat. And normally we, 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 it's just for our private time and this person had a habit of clunking the meditation stool on the floor, on this wooden floor here all the time. And I was really starting to think, I wish this person wasn't here. And uh, I wish I hadn't. And then I come back, a oh, meditation object, you know, do something, whatever, I don't dwell on this. And this went on for a few days. And then one day I was sitting here facing the shrine, very peaceful. And, uh, and then it happened. Clunk. But this time was different because for a split second, for a moment, what I realized was that I had a choice. It's like there was sufficient awareness, sufficient clarity, so that when the clunk came, I recognized I'm not obliged to invest negativity in this sound. It's not an obligation. Or like when, when, when the monks were first living at Haverstock Hill, when Ajahn Sumato, Ajahn Anando, Kemadamo and Viridamo used to living in the forest in Thailand and, you know, the nice conducive conditions and everything supportive and then they get dumped in, in Hampstead in London, Haverstock Hill, this little townhouse just across the road from a pub. And not what they were used to and not what they wanted. And Ajahn Chai was there and there's this noise every evening of these these kind of hungry ghosts over there in their watering hole and, and, and uh, probably a bit of smell drifting over as well. And <clears throat> anyway, one evening after meditation, uh, the monk started complaining to Ajahn Chah about all this noise and how are we supposed to practice with this? And Ajahn Chah says, he said, well, I'm not bothered. <laughs> he says, you know, he says, he says, the sound's not troubling you. You're troubling the sound. The sound's not hassling you. You're hassling the sound. The sound is just so. If we're present enough, there enough, ready enough, the sound comes. Then there's what we do that's extra. So to have a little moment where you see that. To have a little moment where you see that. And then we can have a new perspective on something like forgiveness. We realize, yes, the memory's there, but there's a moment where we've got a choice. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's the truth. That there's a choice. We do not have to invest negativity into it. So if we see that, well, then we have the inspiration, then we have the encouragement to be more present, quicker, at the moment when that memory arises. Yeah. And to recognize that I'm responsible. I can turn this into resentment, bitterness, and carry it around for my whole life, or I can endure, which is what happens first, yeah. and even when we've got the inspiration or the conceptual understanding of this process, it's still going to keep happening. The memory comes in, the investment of ill will. 
So I'm going to endure with mindful, with wise reflection. I'm going to endure the consequences of my habitual investing no negativity in this memory. I'm going to endure it as long as it takes until there's letting go. And we can make a determination. So with that sort of reflection, we can be inspired to deal with such things as lack of forgiveness towards others and towards ourselves, again, which is what a lot of shame is about. You know, we just can't forgive ourselves. So whether we're working with others or whether we're working with ourselves, my recommendation is to work with all beings, to forgive all beings for everything that they've ever done. This is why we have this ritual every New Year's Eve here, uh, forgiveness and renewal ritual. We go through a ritual of actually writing down the names of all the people that we want to forgive on one side of the piece of paper and on the other side of the piece of paper all the people that we want to ask for forgiveness from. And then we burn this little piece of paper and offer it up and begin the new year free from resentment. Okay, it's a ritual, but it inspires and helps and encourages us. It can inspire, help and encourage us into this kind of letting go of what it is that we're doing that carries the bitterness around towards ourselves or towards others. And then also this can lead on when we've got this kind of a feeling for the possibility. This can lead on to a meditation that's very similar to to the meditation on loving-kindness or the meditation on compassion. It's just as the, uh, the texts teach us that with, for instance, the meditation on, on loving-kindness, the meditation on compassion, we, we say meditation on compassion, we, we have the feeling of, of suffering. You know, may all beings be free from suffering. And what we start with is wishing this for ourselves. And so we can bring to mind, bring to heart, bring to body an awareness, you know, a memory of some pain, of being misunderstood, being hurt, or being confronted with our limitations. We've, we've hurt somebody and we really don't want to. And this sense of you know, being this unenlightened, bumbling, fumbling, deluded being, uh, or some specific incident, whatever, the pain comes up. And you, to feel for ourselves the wish, may I be free from suffering. Now, if it happens that we can't, we're so filled with self, self-loathing that we can't feel that, we can imagine somebody who we care about. Yeah. Mother, sibling, so somebody that we have warm feelings for. Imagine them suffering, just like we suffer. And then it happens. Then it gets triggered. You know, a child, if you're a parent, the spontaneous outpouring of warmth from the heart is wishing, may they be free from suffering. May they be this child, you know, a child that's suffering, like the image the Buddha gave as a you know, mother with her only child and the child is sick. That mother just longing, selfless longing, may this being be freed from suffering. And wishing to do what they can to help. And so we hold that image, this wish, the feeling in the body, mind, of wishing beings be free from suffering, and then we work with beings that we know and care for, then move around trying to transfer that feeling onto beings that we're neutral towards and then even moving around beings that we positively dislike, recognizing they're just human beings, just like us, and they suffer just like we do, skillfully exercising our mind in this way and bringing it back around to ourselves, and me too, I'm just like anybody else, and may I be free from suffering. Yeah. Like the pain of resentment, yeah. the bitterness, until we can discover self-forgiveness. So I think that's what I'd like to say on, on the question of shame this evening, that it's not something that we have to be stuck with. These, none of these conditions are. 
all of it is teaching. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Thank you.